0: Hello, I'm Simon Lebon, and you are listening to The Pantheon Network.
1: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 38 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. Those hand gestures are becoming second nature at this point. It only took me 38 episodes. Thank you as always for watching and listening. Please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. You can try Patreon for free now for a week. Go on there, patreon.com slash music is not a genre, and just give it a shot. See if you like it. And then forget about it and just let it, you know, just let it bill you for the next like several years. That's that's what a lot of people do anyway. So I'm going to recommend that. And the reason I'm saying all of this is because I do what I do with no budget, really. This is a, a no-budget operation, not just for the, the the podcast, but for most of the music. I do have a little bit of the budget for the music, and it can't happen without your support. And There's a point at which the work becomes so top-heavy that it takes the place of other paying work that makes it impossible for me to continue this. So that is all to say that Patreon.com is vital. It's essential. For, for artists of all kinds, creators of all kinds, and if you love or like this podcast and Rex Music and all of that, please take a moment to support patreon.com slash genre for as little as $5 a month, and again, you can try it out for free for a week, no obligation, as you know, you probably won't forget. You can cancel it if you need to. Also, please, Go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. For those of you just listening, you're missing this beautiful diorama of this week's episode, which if you're watching, you already know what the topic is. So I recommend going to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre to see every single episode of this podcast in the podcast playlist. And what's great there is now that it's a podcast podcast on YouTube, you don't need to watch it. If you don't want to, you can just listen to it and not have to have the app open, which I think is a pretty cool thing that they've done. And there's a whole lot else there, Uh, clips of live music and a whole bunch of other things. Please subscribe and like and share and all of that and comment. Please comment. NickDemadio.com is my hub. You get everything there, including T-shirts. If you go to the shop menu button there, it takes you to my t-shirt site where you have Rec and MXG and a whole bunch of other artwork on 24 shirts, four different styles, two short sleeve, two long sleeve, one has a hoodie, uh, so many different colors. Uh, there's a discount right now uh, if you go uh, summer 2320, 2320, summer 2320, all one word, you get 20% off through the summer. So please consider that. And finally, please listen to and support my band Rec at recarea.bandcamp.com, A long intro this week, but there's just a lot of important stuff going on. I feel like this has been the best season of MXG so far, and I love that you have been bearing with me with my super busy schedule, and that's why I have been presenting to you some great interviews, on, you know, because I love those people, but also in weeks when I don't have the time to maybe put together a full episode and so many other things. So I really appreciate that. And uh, that said, we're going into a topic this week that's near and dear to my heart, and we're just, just a normal old episode of MXG, season five, episode thirty-eight. And the title of this is "The Cure." Why can't I be them? They have to. You have to emphasize that can't. You know, if you know the song, it, it's that's not how it's sung. So I'm like emphasizing the can't. To say why can't I, you know, and there's a reason for that. Of course, there's always a reason for my subtitles. But why am I doing this podcast this week? For you know, what are the reasons for that? Well, there are three. One, they deserve it. Setting aside that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is just an institution, whether or not they were inducted, and they were in 2019, uh, they deserve iconic status. The way other bands uh, that started in the 70s and made their claim to fame in the 80s and 90s and beyond do, like you 2 and and people like that, Prince. Number two, they're in my rotating top five. If you know anything about me and you uh, you probably know too much, one of those things is that I say I have a top five, it generally means that they rotate in and out. There There are a couple that are always in there and there are a couple that float in and out. I would say the Cure may even be in my top three. Robert Smith is one of many icons of mine who just happens to be around ten years older than I am. It's kind of weird. Like Prince was like that, and uh, Bono is like that, and there. I think there's a couple of others, and I think there's a there's a certain type of influence that happened with people of that age that really hit home for me. And and of course, Robert Smith and the Cure is one of them. And and let's make a note. Before I get into anything else, he's been with Mary Poole for like 50 years. They met when they were 14, and he's 64 now. And they've been married for 35 years, which I think is pretty awesome. And and they're in my top five, and that means that they have influenced me and my music, Rex music, to a very large degree. Now, if you know anything about Rex music, you know that it doesn't sound like any one thing. But it does sound like a pretty healthy mix of influences—an amalgamation uh, that that creates electro power pop. And one of those, in a big way, is the Cure. And it's also possible that my general mix of instrumentation most closely resembles the Cure than any other band. In that, there's a certain balance of live instruments and electronic instruments, and uh, even uh, certain you know echoes and and reverbs and ambience. And, and the way things are produced, the way the guitars and bass, you know, come out, the the mix of music, the, the eclecticism in what I do, uh, it, it goes in different directions in some ways in The Cure, but it's very kind of cl- closely uh, akin to The Cure. And the third reason I'm doing this episode this week is because last night, and I'm recording this on June 21, 2023, last night, June 20th, I went to Madison Square Garden and I saw The Cure live which was the first time I had seen them live in a very long time. Now, for those of you just listening, I'm going to say this. I'm wearing a T-shirt that indicates how long it's been since I've seen them live. And if you know The Cure and you know the Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me tour, then you know how long it's been. Uh, So, you know, let's say I'm fairly sure that Robert Smith was not married yet when I saw The Cure. So why don't I just get started here as if I haven't already started? You know, seven or six or seven minutes into this, uh, about then talk about the concert because that's kind of fresh in my mind, and it wasn't worth it to go. Okay, I, I have a friend who's a musician as well, lives out on the west coast, big Cure fan, has seen the Cure several times over the last thirty-five years, likely, and saw them at the Hollywood Bowl and said it's one of the best concerts they've ever done. They're at the peak of their game, et cetera, et cetera. He was blown away by how great it was. Uh, I have to agree. A band like this could go the way of so many other legacy bands and just phone it in. Just do the hits. Do a short concert sing just enough to get the point across but not with a whole lot of passion and heart and the band is more of a backing band than a you know fully involved part of the show and all of that none of that happened with last night's concert it was a huge concert big the light show the video show incredible and it gave it that bigness. The it cures sound when it gets into kind of the ambient sound and some of the more orce- orchestral pieces that they do, or at least electronically orchestral, uh, have a bigness to them. And yet it was also intimate. There were moments of humor. There were moments when Robert Smith kind of uh, peeled off and made jokes or, you know, hammed it up in front of the, one of the cameras that was on stage and, and all of that. There were lots of new songs. I thought there were more than there were. I believe that there were uh, five new songs uh, off their supposedly upcoming double album, supposedly double album. I'll talk a little bit more about all of that and mystery around that and other things in their past. So most of what they did were older songs. There were some deep cuts, which was very cool. Uh, they open, They opened with a new song, which I thought was Baller. I thought that was really cool. And then they did an old song. Then they did another new song. Then they did a couple of old songs. And I think, A, that shows respect to the fans, but it shows respect to the artists too, in that they're up there performing for us. And, and, you know, any relationship with an artist is a two way street. They're not just there to provide for us, we're there to provide for them as well, whether that's financially, as I talked about earlier with uh, Patreon and all that, or in terms of spiritual, moral, and, you know, support, and enthusiasm, and all of that, and the opportunity for them to showcase what they do. So for us to go to a concert and expect just the hits from a band that's still creating new music is unfair to them. And for them to only do new music would be unfair to us. So I feel like the mix of what The Cure did last night was perfect. You know, uh, they did kind of three sets. They have one long set then they did a sh- they went off. So they did a short set. Someone online called it an on- sec- a first encore and that wasn't an encore. It was just the next part of the set where they started with two new songs and then went into some older stuff. And that was a very ambient part of the set, you know, kind of the middle part of a set, you know, night or concert. And then the encore was hit, 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 hit. And and as if they hadn't already done a bunch of hits. Uh, But those were like just bona fide hits, you know, some of their biggest. Overall, Robert Smith's voice was just on, was spot on. And the band, dynamic and excellent. They were tight. And they, they again, weren't phoning it in. Uh, they did 29 songs, all the way from their first album, Three Imaginary Boys, and I'll Do a Discography Soon, up through 2004, their eponymous album, The Cure. The only albums they didn't do anything from that I can recall uh, were uh, Wild Mood Swings, Blood Flowers, and 413 Dream. Uh, and, you know, hey, you can't do them all, right? And then, like I said, five new songs, Twilight, the Twilight Sad, the Scottish band was the opening act, uh, had a, a bit more of an industrial sound to them, but had some ambience too, a little harder core. Huge Cure fans themselves were very grateful to be here, which was really cool. Uh, they have a connection to the band Frightened Rabbit, which I didn't know, I believe their drummer, it was it, uh, was the brother of the main dude in Frightened Rabbit who ended up committing suicide a few years ago, so... It was just this interesting connection with a band that is itself uh, deliberately hardcore and depressing, opening for a band that is known to have been, at times, uh, you know, downbeat, depressing, and and all of that stuff. So it's just kind of an interesting swirl going on there, and yet didn't dim the night, really, in any way. And it was was a cool opening act to see. Uh, There were a couple of people there who... There was somebody exiting, said... They thought it was self-indulgent that The Cure did songs from their new album. And that is, to me, and I'm going to say this because I've said this about people online and forums, that's not a real fan. That is somebody who's a mercenary who is in it simply to absorb the music because they think it's made just for them. You know. And I mean, listen, Robert Smith is probably way more generous about this than than I would be. He was just really beautiful and in great spirits and and said, uh, this was fucking great, thank you, at the end, and they just had a great time, and loved every minute of it, I and mean, he's loving every minute of it. But I have to say, if you're one of those fans who's listening to a band who's still creating new music, and you begrudge them the opportunity to play that new music, you're not a fan. If you're one of those fans who, oh, they peaked in 1985, or 1989, or, or 1992, or whatever, you're not a fan. You are, you are a mercenary who is maybe a half of a fan, and that's fine, you know, because life is short, and it's not that big a deal, but from a music standpoint, we don't, we would not, we would not get along, uh, you know, in terms of that mindset, so I had to put that out there, that's my editorial, that's my Andy Rooney moment, for those older people, uh, all right, so a little history in the music, uh, the Cure were in middle school when they got on stage under the name Obelisk in 1973. They then formed for real as a band called Malice in 1976. The following year, they changed their name to Easy Cure when uh, the drummer Lal Tolhurst uh, had written some lyrics on a bunch of uh, on a paper, and they they ripped the paper up and put in a hat. And what they pulled out were the words Easy Cure. They didn't love it, but they stuck with it. Uh, then they decided it uh, they, they was a little too American hippie-ish. So they, uh, Robert Smith knew there were a lot of bands at the time putting the in front of their uh, name, like the Clash, the Knack, and, and all of those, which happened again in the early two thousands with you know the White Stripes and the Strokes and all of that, and wanted to do that and didn't and thought the Easy Cure just sounded not good, so cut Easy. And that's how they got the name The Cure, which happened in 1978. Uh, and other than a brief hiatus in the early mid-80s, Simon Gallup has been with the band from that point on and is still with them and did an amazing job last night. They, to me, had a similar trajectory to you 2 where they knew each other when they were kids. They formed. They had a couple of different names. They got together in earnest in the late eight, late 70s. And then released their first album proper right around the turn of that decade. And then had similar peaks in the 80s, had a similar, like, seminal album in the late 80s, early 90s, had more things going on in the 90s. And then they, their paths diverge. They're both still creating new music. It's, it's in, an interesting parallel. And I thought that that was uh, worth mentioning. In December 1978, they released their first uh, single. I believe, called Killing an Arab, which is on uh, Diorama Time. And for those of you just listening, I have here several CDs, a CD box set, and three LPs, which is almost my entire collection. There's one CD I can't find and a cassette I didn't bother pulling out. But it's a pretty good representation. And if you look over my right shoulder, you see this old dude staring at me, staring at the sea, standing on a beach, or whatever you want to call it. It's one of those, both of those. The singles... Uh, collection that came out to talk about a little later opens with killing an Arab, but it doesn't anymore because there was some form of censorship because people, people misunderstood what that song was meant. And it was about um, uh, Albert Camus book, the stranger and it was his interpretation of what happened in that book, et cetera, et cetera. Censorship is dumb on every level, uh, but you can't find it on any of the streaming services. I have it here on LP. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, most likely. Uh, one thing I've always loved about The, the Cure, just to kind of break from this history, is that they find a way to merge love with melancholy, and yet it's not always about uh, unrequited love or rejected love or, or failed love. It's even about even successful love, and yet there's a melancholy involved in there, too, which if you substitute the word uh, love with life, you can say the same thing. And to me, that mix kind of represents the truest version of love and life, which is there's always a bittersweetness and a, and, a, and a melancholy to it because, you know, it has to end, you know, there's peaks and valleys and all of that. And so I, that's one of the reasons I think why I gravitate towards what The keyword does. Uh, as far as sound and the reason i'm breaking here right before i talk about their discography and what happened after their their single that came out in december 78 is that they weren't what they became and then what they became they weren't much they weren't after that and what i'm saying is we know them and a lot of people don't know the cure will say well they're a goth band because a lot of what goth became came from what the cure did and what band like susie and the Bauhaus and all of that but but very very much so the Cure and the pale makeup and red lipstick and the crazy hair and the dark colors and all of that. But they they started out as a post they started as a punk band that morphed into a post-punk band. And if you listen to some of the Easy Cure demos, they just sound punk. They frankly just sound punk leaning in towards post-punk. Then they become post-punk really when they're the Cure. And, and then after that, morph into goth. But then they go and they also do things like a proto, and I may say proto, I'm not going to say proto 17 times, but here are some things that they've done that they were progenitors of that other bands took from and blew up into full-on genres. Emo, shoegaze, dark ambient like Sun, the, the band S-U-N-N-O with the parentheses, dirge rock, new wave, synth pop, dark wave, post-rock, art rock, dream pop, ambient like Sigur Rosh, mope rock, it, it all of that all of that and more again one of the reasons why i love them and it's the type of band i gravitate to as you know i prefer bands that don't stay in one lane or if you're going to stay in one lane go full out and do it amazingly well although again i'd still prefer bands who don't stay in one lane the way Rec does uh since the 1980s at least They've been into remixes, they've been into electronic uh, reinterpretations of their music, which I absolutely love. They released a couple of singles and albums like that, similar to U2. I love that they found a way to do long instrumental passages, and frankly, usually they're the intros to the songs, and not make them boring, make them compelling, make them draw you in. They did that last night several times at the concert because they were playing their stuff, and even their new stuff does that to a large degree, and it's one of those where if you don't like the cure, that's going to turn you off right away. But if you if you come with an open mind, it will draw you in, in ways a lot of long-form instrumental music doesn't, because, because the composers and the producers and the arrangers of that music don't understand that you can have subtle variations within themes and within repetition that make it more interesting than just doing the same thing over and over for too long. So, one of the things I've always liked about them. And just a side that I thought was kind of cool, they have kind of, they've always had kind of a thing with numbers and time. Uh, Robert Smith's lyrics, I should say. Here's the titles that I could find that reference either numbers themselves or something about time, time of day, whatever. Uh, In more or less in chronological order 10 15 Saturday night, another day, three imaginary boys play for today. Three. At night, 17 seconds, the holy hour, Hour. 100 years, a short-term effect, a strange day, in between days, six different ways, a night like this, if only tonight we could sleep, a thousand hours, Wendy time, Friday, I'm in love, the 13th, wrong number, 39, new day, and a few hours after this, and two, number two, late, and this twilight garden, are all from Join the Dots, which I'll talk about later. Before 3, The Only One, This Here and Now, With You, and 413, Dream. And the new song that I know of, And Nothing Is Forever. Just a cool, and you you understand when you talk about the melancholy of life and love, that, that there'll be a lot of references to time. And the numbers thing is just a quirk, and it's sort of similar to me... As the quirks that Prince had in some of his lyrics and the way that he represented his lyrics uh, in in text in in print, and that there were quirks that became part of his personality, and these kind of quirks and that those that kind of like little bit of a yodel thing in the way Robert Smith uses his voice are the quirks that make the Cure what the Cure is. Uh, so let's get into the discography. Um, I'm enjoying this immensely, and yet I don't want to keep you for two hours, so let's do it right. Now, for this discography, I'm going to probably be picking up the things that are around my head, first of all. Hopefully, I don't knock them down. Second of all, here's what I'm doing. All the main album releases, of which there were 13, uh, and and noted non-album singles, noted other releases, such as EP or compilations, greatest hits, things like that. I'm not going to mention live albums or any other releases. Those, That's what I'm going for. So I broke it down into five phases. Phase one really honestly consists of just that first album and some singles. It's the, it's the distinctly post-punk period before they lean deeply into goth. And some notable non-album singles that happened before their first album came out. That Killing an Arab I talked about already and Albert Camus, and The Stranger, and The Censorship, and all of that. Boys Don't Cry, and there's several versions of this. There was another version released in the 80s when they became more famous. That is probably the one that we know better, but uh, at any rate, uh, any of those versions are are interesting. And versions also meaning performance was different, and not just the edit. Uh, Jumping Someone Else's Train, great song. These are all 1979 now. And then you get their first album, which I'm going to not show you for a reason, visually. And that first album was called Three Imaginary Boys, released in 1979. It is their only just straight-up post-punk album. Now, it does have some hints of things to come, the darkness of goth, the, the, the ambience, some atmospherism, which I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up. The willingness to stretch beyond, you know, just post-punk uh it has the the some of the rock some of the pop uh it has danceable beats ly- lyrics that can go dark introspective hard vulnerable playful it's got all of those signature marks but not fully fleshed out yet but you could see that they already started really strong uh standout, standouts for me on that album are 10 15 saturday night the opening track grinding halt subway song fire in cairo and three imaginary boys now the reason i didn't show you this first cd is because it's sort of not that album That's because I bought these when I was in a a, a flurry of wanting to own everything by them and know every song that they've done. And at the time, imports were too expensive. So what I have here is an album called Boys Don't Cry, which for the longest time I thought was their actual first album was released in 1980. What it is, is similar to when I do my Beatles thing, and I talk about how their early albums had two versions, a UK version, a US version. This was the US version of Three Imaginary Boys. In that, they took some of the songs from Three Imaginary Boys and that list of non-album singles that I mentioned above that came out before and put them together. This is not on streaming that I've seen I'm sure you can find the album as a complete work on YouTube and other places. I don't know that it's that important because all the versions of what's on here are on either, again, the, the, some kind of singles compilation or Three Imaginary Boys, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, any suggestions as to where to put the CDs when I'm done? I'm going to throw them down here. just for fun. All right, so that's 1980. Now, right out of the date, then they finish that up. They go into God, the, the phase two, which is their deliberate goth phase just you know diving into it largely because of the influence of Susie and the banshees and their friendship and the work that robert smith did with them especially was about to do same year as boys don't cry the year after three imaginary boys they released an album 17 seconds what just a a really esoteric and you know obtuse album cover i absolutely love it uh try to do it without the glare there Uh, Robert Smith talked about how influenced he was when he played guitar for Susie and the Banshees and filled in, and and that absolutely shows here. Uh, And it was essential to the Cure's sound development. They moved beyond post-punk and added this kind of dark ambience. And again, I love that it starts with an instrumental that's bold, especially for a young band only putting out their second album. They're already incorporating some non- Uh, you know, Power Trio rock band sounds. This is the album that started their long intros for their songs, long instrumental intros, which is awesome. This is when Simon Gallup joins on bass. And side two of this album is insanely good. Uh, I don't know that I would recommend Start Here for The Cure if you don't know The Cure. But if you want to get into where did they, you know, how did they develop their goth sound, I would almost recommend just starting with side two of this album. And if you're not sure which, just, you know, look it up because it doesn't show you that on streaming, of course. Stands out Standouts to me on this album are Play for Today, In Your House, A Forest, which was a single, M, At Night, and 17 Seconds. Brings us to their third album, Faith, released in 1981, really of a piece with 17 seconds. It's, you know, that esoteric cover that looks a little bit like a thumbnail. I honestly did not look up what it's supposed to be. But uh, someone can tell me in the comments, what were these covers supposed to be on on, uh, 17 Seconds and Faith? Faith leaned even more heavily into depression in both sound and word. And to me, this album kind of codified goth more than 17 seconds it it dug so it, it deeply into it and fleshed it out so much that this is where really the goth became goth i feel, almost feel like 17 seconds was more proto a goth and this was full-on just full-blown goth standouts for me on this are primary other bo- other voices doubt the drowning man and faith and then right after that they release uh, a single that still has a very—it's a goth single, but it's a single. It, it's got it's got some pop hookiness to it, and it's Charlotte. Sometimes cool video if you want to look it up. So it's also 1981, and really this was their uh, first standout single in my book since those non-album singles that came out a couple of years before. Uh, Kelly and I are jumping someone else's train. Um, Boys don't cry, and what was the what was the fourth one? Um, three. Well, geez. I don't remember it. Uh, oh, no, that was it. Okay, there wasn't a fourth one. So that sums up 1981. 1982, they get to their final goth, like, full-on goth album. They would certainly revisit goth uh, pornography. Interesting that there's more color in this cover, even though it's still you know obtuse, obscure, esoteric, whatever. And that their faces are starting to show up. It's as if they're kind of coming out of themselves and showing, well, here's what we can do, and we can do a little more of it. It's even more goth. It's even There's even more darkness to it. I think the song Cold on this may be the quintessential goth song. In fact... There are other bands that were were actually just goth, and you may start with them if you know goth better and want to, or don't and want to get to know what goth is. But as far as The Cure, and as far as really goth in general, I think the song "Cold" from Pornography is a great place to start. Uh, I think this is their best goth album. Where all of the things that would define a lot of the Cure sound really started to come out here in the same way that their cover was color, and you start to see their faces, even though their faces are, you know, blurry and distorted and all of that, kind of like uh, uh, Rubber Soul, the cover of Rubber Soul. Uh, the, the arrangement and the production and the lyrical and melodic tropes that, that, that would show up on all their subsequent albums, a lot of that to me, it really came like gelled on pornography and the flange just flange if you know anything about flange you'll hear a lot of flange side one to me of this album absolutely amazing you put side one of this with side two 17 seconds you've got like a perfect album standouts 100 years a short-term effect the hanging garden always love that song siamese twins and cold like i talked about which brings us into phase three uh When they decided, or I assume Robert Smith, but I think mainly, uh, well, the band in general, that they wanted to do more than just goth, they started. I call this phase veering pop. They weren't straight up pop. They, they, they. At times, have done straight up pop songs, but they never really have been straight up anything. The notable start of this period was a side project that Robert Smith did with a couple of people from the Susie and the Banshees or from the Banshees, I guess, called Blue Sunshine, and the album was called The Glove. 1983 we're talking about. I don't know much about it, but it does show how Smith, despite the whole post punk, you know, rejection of what came before attitude, really had an interest in psychedelic music and explored that. And he and he's, you know, they covered Hendrix a foxy lady on their first album and that was an indication that that's always been there that interest uh they also jumped uh into new wave and dark wave on this album which was where the cure wanted to go themselves and what i find with the cure is that there are sort of almost like intros to what they want to do next in their non-album work So the non-album singles at the beginning or some singles coming up that I will mention uh, actually right after this or this side project, uh, Blue Sunshine, show like, well, we're dipping our toe in here. We're doing it at a time where we don't have to call it a Cure album. It can be a different band or the single or whatever or remixes later on and then decide, oh, yeah, that's where we want to go. And then they go there. Uh, And I bring that up because the next release that they did was a 1983 compilation called Japanese Whispers, which, you know, was a collection of some of the stuff that came before. But the notable thing about this is that it had three just singles that if you want to understand early period cure beyond their goth, you listen to these singles, Let's Go to Bed, The Walk, and The Love Cats. And those, just in general, those three, is not the totality of the cure, but it will help you understand why they are what they are now, why they're legendary, and why they, you know, continually rose above just being a band that did well in one thing, and that some fans still know, but it ended up not going much beyond that. And that this these singles really kicked off this new phase big time. It was such a departure from the goth stuff. It it, it showed that they weren't looking to be one kind of band. Simon Galbraith was in here. Lal Talhurst switched from drums to keys and stayed there until he left a few years later, which I think was a big part of why the sound changed because they started to get a little bit more synth-heavy than they were in their earlier work. Which brings me to the next album. Uh uh oh, which do I not have it? Oh man, or did I do I have it out of order? Let's see, what did I do? No, I guess I don't have it. So that's one I'm missing, and it's called the top. And to me, it's 1984. Had they not made this album and those previous singles, I probably never would have gotten into the Cure, or I would have like visited them after they had broken up in the mid '80s, let's say, and and said, oh, that's a pretty interesting and cool, you know, post-punk, goth, whatever band, but the fact that they went in this direction gave them legs and longevity and made me, is probably what made me more interested in them way, way back, you know, and and keeps me interested in them. Uh, For want of a better word, they added more femininity, let's say, to the music, and I don't like that gender binary, because, um, you know, Men can have softness and women can have hardness and whatever you associate with that word. But it was Robert Smith and the cure opening themselves up to not having to be so heavy and dark, but giving putting a little bit of lightness and, and vulnerability, more vulnerability. Still it's a bunch of elements of goth. And honestly, the hard songs are kind of harder on here. Going, you know, they're they're more rocking in some ways. They're crunchier. But then there's so many cool sound additions with the synths and flute and, yes, some elements of psychedelia, whatever you however you use that word, and uh, more flange and all that stuff and chorus and everything. And the standouts to me on uh, the top are Bird Mad Girl, Dressing Up, and, drumroll please, The Caterpillar, an amazing song, The Caterpillar. It's one of those songs, it's, it's it's got a twee-ness to it. and I've always loved the word twee. And the way The Cure does twee is pretty freaking amazing and very different from the way Bell and Sebastian did it later on, but related, I would say. And the reason I drumrolled this song is not just because it's a great song, but because there are two songs at the end of this episode. The first is an original of mine, which I'll talk about later, called Shoot to Kill, heavily influenced by The Cure among other things. The second is a bonus song, which is a live acoustic rendition of the song The Caterpillar that I did uh, on one of my live, uh, you know, uh, online performances. And I deliberately did that performance like 80% to imitate Robert Smith and The Cure, but on acoustic. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'll talk about it a little bit more later at the end. Uh Banana Fishbones is another great song from that album. It's great weirdness and great mix of sounds. And honestly, the stuff on Rex's new album is a lot more like what's happening here on this album with the combination of hardness and rock and softness and synth and and danceable and funky, like all that stuff. There's a song on there called Wait Too Rough. Uh that I haven't finished yet. I'm finishing it in the next week or two that really feels a lot like what's going on here on this uh, album, The Top, even though I hadn't listened to it in years. So that's how much influence there's been. And then the song, The Top itself, uh, also a standout song, which brings me to the most important album in their catalog for me. And that is The Head on the Door. This is like U2's Unforgettable Fire, where... You can say, critics can say, fans can say that there were albums that came after that were more definitive, that were better, whatever, however you judge that. Not for me. This album, and I'll talk about my top picks for The Cure at the end, uh, this is at the top for me. It will always be. It's a perfect album for me. There's not one song that I skip when I listen to it, and it it sunk into me so quickly that whatever they were going to come out with next, I was going to eat up completely, even if they went in different directions and they did, you know, it, to me, I think pornography was their first out and out solid album. And the top was important because it broke new ground and, and gave them permission to go in different directions in significant ways. To me, The Head on the Door was their first truly great album, like truly just absolute great album. And the first album where it was clear that they weren't just going for being a good band, being an interesting band, being a band that can mix it up and do different things, but they were going for greatness and they were going for success. And it was, yes, I confess the album that introduced me to them. I got into them before this t-shirt, this kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, which we're getting too soon anyway. This was also when Simon Gallup returned. And what's interesting there is that it's indicative of how other than Gallup, everybody else in the band, it's like a freaking revolving door. Unlike you two, something not like you two. That that Smith and, and Gallup, other than, again, that brief period when Gallup left, uh, were really the stalwarts here. And still are. And I find that cool, you know. Uh, let's see. So, yes. His bass, again, and you'll hear it on the song Shoot to Kill. You'll hear it on a lot of what I've done in the past. It, that, that kind of walking, talking bass, that melodic bass, huge. Just absolutely huge and beautiful. Standouts, okay. In Between Days, which they did last night, awesome. They did a bunch of these. Uh, there are songs and bands that I don't like, songs, bands that I like, songs and bands that I love, that I really love, but I don't aspire to be like them. I might grab a little influence here or there, but I don't want to be like, ah, I need to, you know, emulate. Then there are songs and bands I am inspired to emulate, amalgamate, incorporate, absorb everything and put it into my music and be a part of that and have them be a part of me. For example, with Prince, uh, when the song When Doves Cry came out, I knew I was going to need to you know, in- incorporate anything else Prince did into what I was doing. With U2, it was probably the song Bad from Unforgettable Fire and that whole album in general. And with The Cure, I know I heard other songs. I heard Boys Don't Cry and all those other singles, etc. I liked them. I listened to them. I enjoyed them. But when In Between Days hit me, it never quit me and to this day when i listen to it or when i play it and there's a link in the text not just to my my original not just to the caterpillar performance but to the, my full acoustic set tribute to the cure and you'll hear me do in between days there i still tingle i still get the chills like just like you two's bad when i hear it i get chills and and that's why i had to take a take a moment to talk about in between days Honestly, all the tracks. My standouts for me, again, I can't pick. I can't, I have no point to listen to them. You can start to hear on this album why they were such a noted, spoken influence, Billy Corrigan says, on Smashing Pumpkins. You can really start to hear it on this album, even though some of what they did before bleeds into the pumpkins, too. But uh, yeah, The Head on the Door. If you like The Head on the Door, I think you'll just generally like the cure. But I could be wrong. You know, for because that's like my friend Rich said, for some it's a different album. The entry album's different for everybody. It was that for me. Now, next album. That was 1985. Uh the next album is actually behind me, The Dude Staring, standing on a beach or staring at the sea, I think was the C D name version, the singles, 1986, prior to, frankly, their big, huge success period which is why it's cool and why it is one of the, I don't rank it because it's a compilation album, but it's uh, probably the second most important album of theirs for me because uh, it introduced me to all their amazing singles and the work they had done before uh, head on the door without me having to go out and buy all those albums or cassettes at the time or, or, you know, I don't think they were on CD quite yet. And to me, it's the place to start. There's two albums I'm going to say, if you don't know the cure, don't know if you like them, Don't know where to start. It's overwhelming. They've been around for 45 years. They have 13 albums and so many other odd releases. You start with A, standing on the beach, staring at the sea, and B, an album later on I'll talk about called Galore. It really, like, you you absorb the music on this album here, and you'll know right away whether or not you're going to like this band, and you'll understand the band fairly well, honestly. You know, it's certainly not everything. I like this big monstrosity here, this CD uh, box set, Join the Dots, which doesn't have everything either, but it's more comprehensive, but it's enough to understand them, and uh, I had to stop and make mention of that. So, now, to the huge splash, two CDs, why? Because it's a double album, they didn't want to make it, put it in one for some reason, who knows why?
2: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
1: I have two eyes staring at you now. For the album that's on my shirt, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. It's also behind me. I'm leaning. You can see the LP. I'm looking for the poster that was included in there. Can't find it. If anybody knows where it is out there, you know, hidden in my home, tell me. Take a guess. If you get it right, I'll send you a free something. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, freaking double album. Let's just, okay, any band. They had had some success with the head on the door, and that, that broke them in the States, really, as did Staring at the Sea or Standing on a Beach or whatever. But they, I don't know that you could say they had enough success to say, oh, we're going to do a double album now and screw you guys. But they did it. And these kind of bold decisions are what make great artists great to me. It's a very 80s album, 80s freaking 7, but somehow doesn't, didn't age poorly. It doesn't, there are certain moments where it dates itself, but it doesn't date itself as much as other 80s albums and as other albums from especially you know, 86 to 89, frankly, 91 or two, there were some albums that still sounded like that, doesn't quite, this is an album that I ate and regurgitated and re-ate, I did that gorilla thing that they do with their food, fun, Uh, fun to see, used to work with gorillas, Uh, ask me how, and they did that, disgusting, I did that with this album, I knew everything front to back, I mean, shoot, the LP has all the lyrics in there, so how could I not? And every single song, back and forth, up and down, just absolutely blew me away before really anybody else even knew the band in my circle. And again, like I said, it was the last time I had seen them live until last night. The songs on here probably uh, evoke more emotions in me than anything else on the whole because of how much I absorbed it, because of how much it meant to me at that point in my life. And it's probably still how I most think of The Cure when I think of The Cure. I think of the way they were on this album, whether or not it's my favorite. And it's in my top, but it's not my favorite favorite. The addition of horns and other sounds shows that they were still growing. And I love horns, so that's excellent for me. Uh, The standouts, and some of them, I'll tell you, they give me tingles. The the Kiss. That's a perfect example of a non-boring, long, instrumental intro. The Kiss love it catch uh that song gives me real tingles torture why can't i be you still gets i everybody in that place was dancing when that song came on last night how beautiful you are just a painful song that gives me tingles hey you fun just like heaven you know it if you don't know it then you haven't been listening to music the last you know 40 years all i want hot 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 fun song one more time I'm just going to stop listing because there's I, I, I won't be able to pick. The Perfect Girl is another standout, though, later on in the album, and I think that's worth mentioning. And this, to me, that ended that phase of their career. They did what they did. They accomplished it, and they wanted to reincorporate some goth into their stuff, and they did that with their next album two years later in 1989, it's an album that really had legs and traveled more into the '90s sound, even than the '80s sound. Similar to the um, Depeche Mode albums around that turn of that decade, and you and you choose, you know, album "Tongue Baby," and that is Disintegration, often ranked as their best album. Almost every critic in an extremely lazy way, says that's their best album and and they may be right for the reasons that they say and uh, it's a judgment call anyway. The return to goth is evident here, but they still maintain their pop sensibility and they still maintain their um, relationship with keyboards more so than in their goth phase. And I think that if it's not my top, it's definitely in my top five. It's... Like Head on the Door, the Head on the Door, there is no weak track. Uh, but yeah, it's again, it's like U2's Octung Baby. Everyone wants to say it's their best because about groundbreaking and seminal it was. But I, I don't know that I agree. Again, top five, yeah, for sure. For sure. But best in terms of you sit down and listen to it and you feel... Satisfied that you've had a comprehensive experience, I I don't know that I agree. Standouts for me again, all the whole album's awesome, but "Plain Song," ooh man, "Pictures of You," they played those last night. "Lullaby," they played last uh, night. "Love Song," "Killer" played last night. "Fascination Street" and "Prayers for Rain" also excellent, excellent songs. Right after that, when they were at the height of their success, really. They released an album called Mixed Up a year later, 1990. Uh, Again, shows how into remixes they were. And what I love about uh, The Cure is that when they release a compilation, they always make sure to put something new on there, which they did here. Their single, Never Enough, which really like, kind of, to me, catapulted them into that kind of industrial techno feel while still retaining The Cure-ishness. It was a great single and a very important single because of what they would do subsequently and their love affair with remixes and electronic music. But then that brings me to uh, Whoa, dude. Maybe I just had these out of order. That's what it is. Um, that brings me to this album. Wish. 1992. Still in the same phase of like post-goth, post-pop bringing them together disintegration elements are on here of course but it was three years after disintegration there's more pop elements uh, there's more positivity overall which is cool uh it's an it's a great evolution to me from disintegration the, the best place they could have gone next was an album like wishes an album like love sexier diamonds and pearls in that Everyone says the album, or that came one or two albums before, was that artist's best album. In the in the case, sign of the times, whatever. But it is an eminently worthy addition, and it to me is like Zuropa in the sense that I actually like it better as a listening experience than Disintegration. In the way I like Zuropa better as a full on listening experience than Octunk Baby. Again, I'm not saying it's a better album. I leave that to actual critics. That's how I feel. It ties in disintegration with stuff from all their previous three albums. So it has a little bit more quirkiness and playfulness. And to me, this is really the last of their classic period albums. Uh, Yeah, like I said, I enjoyed it a little bit more. It's one of the most beautifully and tastefully produced albums of theirs and, frankly, anyone's in my book. It doesn't go overboard on anything. And it doesn't date, to me, it doesn't date itself very, very much either standouts are the song hi geez great single from the edge of the deep green sea which they did last night wendy time excellent doing the unstuck yeah friday i'm in love uh ubiquitous people know that now even more than they know just like heaven or why can't i be you or a love song usually trust a letter to elise absolutely absolutely beautiful and end is a song that to me showed that they could hang with what was going on in music at the time, which in 92 was grunge, and that they were right in the mix there. And that honestly, they probably influenced a lot of what grunge was. Uh, yeah. Right, so, next album. I swear I'm missing albums, and whatever, and that's fine. But I I will say that, because I swear I had their, their... In fact, I know I have this album somewhere, I can't find it. But look up the cover. It's called Wild Mood Swings, 1996. It's the first release that they did that I was a little let down by. Uh, it was also their last very well-charting album. It still had a lot of what they did on their, you know, disintegration and wish. Uh, but for some reason, this left me feeling kind of, eh. You know, it was, it's honestly probably... I want to say maybe my least favorite of theirs, although because I didn't hugely, you know, didn't hugely absorb uh, like uh, 17 seconds in that that era, I don't know. But I think, I know that those to me are probably better albums for what they were attempting. So yeah, this might be my least favorite. And it might've been the timing. It might've been I was into something else at the time, who knows. But it's also partly because I just didn't love the chosen singles. Mint Car was okay, but it seemed to be trying too hard to be kind of like an old Cure song. Uh, it suffered to me from that mid-90s overtasteful production that so many bands went through, some never came out of, where it was like, let's do some, you know, high-minded sound of whatever. And, oh, man, it really started to get to me, you know, like Sting went through that a lot. I don't think the sequence flow on this album is great either, but the second half's pretty darn strong. I will say, having said that, the second half is pretty, pretty damn strong. Standouts For Me are Want, This Is A Lie, Round and Round and Round, Numb, Return and Trap. Notable release after that, the year after 1997, was Galore. It is another uh, hits compilation that catches you up from staring at the whatever, sea beach, blah, blah, blah. And it's the second album I'd say, go for that one. Standing uh, on a beach, staring at the sea, and Galore. Those two albums start there. You know, And they had a new single on there, "Wrong Number, which to me, that single was kind of better than the entire album that came out before, Wild Mood Swings. Uh, really good single, really strong single. Bring me to Phase 5, which is what they've been in, although I haven't, no one's heard their new albums. Who knows if this is a continuation of that phase or a new one. I call this After the Fall, because since Wild Mood Swing" didn't do well and they were sort of falling out of fashion... That kind of gave them the freedom to do whatever they wanted to do in some sense. And their first step on Bloodflowers in 2000 was to go goth hard and heavy again. And some critics thought that they were very self-conscious in doing that. And I don't, understand, I don't know why they did it. If they did it because they thought, oh, we want to be classic cure, then sure. If they did it because, well, we, we went in different directions, we want to go back to that, then no. You know. So it's hard to say. I think this was a good reshift from their last album, honestly, because to me, it doesn't try hard. It goes back to kind of their safe space, and maybe that's what made it like, okay, wasn't their best, wasn't their worst, but it put them in a comfort zone, which I think they needed to be in in order to get to the next stuff, which I really enjoyed. They didn't release a single from this. Another statement, like, we're just going to do what we do, and we're not going to care about the charts at this point, you know? It's a beautifully produced album. It's more sounds more like disintegration, but not quite as dark. And does move it forward and the production is a little more, you know, current and all that. It sounded so much more like the cure than the previous album. You know, it, it it just did. I do think it was a bit too much of a course correction, but the fact that they reintroduced their long intro instrumentals and stuff like that, very cool. It's like, ah, oh, the cure is back to being the cure, whatever. Standouts out of this world. Where the birds always sing, Maybe Someday is a excellent frickin' song, and really their kind of last American hit. They had other hits in the in the U in the UK and in Europe, which happens with a lot of bands. When I do my Bee Gees episode at some point in the next year or so, I'll explain to you how they were hugely successful throughout their careers, well beyond Saturday Night Fever, but only not in the States, because the states suck in a lot of ways. Uh, Some standouts uh, other than Maybe Someday, and that is There Is No If, great song, 39, sprawling, but in a good way. And Bloodflowers has a great sonic palette, great sonic palette. Uh, Notable, Greatest Hits, released in 2001. I thought I had this too, I don't know where the heck it is. Uh, Just Say Yes is a cool new single from that. Cut here is also a new song. They're also a good song. But Just CS cool new single. Again, like I said, they always put something new on everything. And that brings me to this monstrosity. Join the dots. Look at that. When I open it up, two CDs here. A huge book. Two CDs there. All different colors. Really beautiful box set. I can't remember if it had a box to it, too, that I ruined. But anyway, four CDs that go over the fiction years. That was the name of their label from 1978 to 2001. B-sides and rarities. So you got the stuff that you didn't get before, unreleased stuff, alternate takes, etc. This was 2004, such a great collection. And then great that you were hearing stuff that you hadn't heard before. It's also the first time I learned that Join the Dots is the British version of Connect the Dots because I thought, oh, he's being clever, he's being cute. No, that's just what they say. say Join the Dots instead of Connect the Dots, you know, that puzzle brings me to their last two albums the last one i own again i think i have the other one on where it is the cure blood flowers 2004 no i'm sorry the cure the eponymous album the cure 2004 to me is even stronger than blood flowers you can see them going back into a kind of playful phase where they're using like actual you know drawing drawn art that has that kiddy feel to it which i absolutely love uh it's more compelling. It's deeper. It harkens a bit more back to their early 80s work, which is one of my favorite periods over there. So I, let's say early, mid-80s, like 1983, 84, 85, like that, like mid-80s, let's say. Uh, and a real refresher for me, you know, Bloodflowers was great, but a little bit uh, down, but a little depressing. This had a better mix to me. Standouts, Lost, Labyrinth, Before Three, The End of the World, which is a great single, Alt.End, end. Taking Off and Never. And then their final album so far from 2008. Can't believe it's been 15 years. It's called 413 Dream. It has a similar cover with the drawing on it. And I'm sorry I don't have it. I actually think the reason I don't is because I got it on, at the time on iTunes. Uh, again, another strong album. Very self-assured, very Cure-ish, more eclectic, willing to have more fun than the last two albums. And I will talk about my rankings. It's probably one of my favorite Cure albums. And yeah, I'm talking about an album that came out, was it 30 years after they started? Love this album. Flows better than the previous two albums. uh, And has the most cohesive variety that they had done since. Geez, cohesive variety? probably wish yeah uh and it rocks it also rocks and it also goes more pop but in a good way than the than the previous few albums uh standouts for me the only one There's gonna be a lot here the only one the reasons why freak show fun song siren song beautiful the real snow white surprisingly wonderful the hungry ghost the perfect boy this here and now with you sleep when i'm dead and it's over just really no weak tracks no weak tracks on this album. Again, one of the top, one of the maybe three or four albums in their catalog that has not a single Passover track. And then 2008 passes, and they do a lot of stuff. They tour a lot, whatever, and they take breaks. They talk about releasing new things. They talk about releasing, a few years later, 414 Scream. Never did. Uh, that's a pension of theirs is to talk about releases and then not do them. Or to delay doing them, which is where we are now. They did a single in twenty fourteen called so- um, "Hello Goodbye," which is the Beatles song. They they paired with James McCartney, Paul's son, for um, a Beatles tribute album where you know famous artists covered their songs. And then uh, since then, they've collaborated with. I think did they collaborate with Alves or Churches? I think collaborated with Churches. That's what it was. The, one of the bands where there's V's in the name. Um, and really nothing until the talk of the last 6 years that a new album was coming out and here we are and now they say this year it's going to be a double album it's going to be Songs of a Lost World i believe is what they're saying it's called heard some of the songs last night and i am i'm compelled there were a couple that i thought were real you know they had some glue in there and there were others that sounded just so much like their sonic palette can't tell where the whole album's gonna double album's gonna go but you know of course i'm gonna listen to it which brings me the last couple of things here my top five and five is in quotes because there's seven here and that is the head on the door yes nothing compares kiss me kiss me kiss me not because i think it's a better album than some of the other ones but because i lived it and it lived in me wish i will rank as third above my fourth one which is disintegration I just will. And the fifth one is the one I just talked about, 413 Dream. Might be a surprising pick, but I'm telling you right now, give it a listen. If you like the cool, you'll love this album. Uh, Pornography and the top would be six and seven to me, and I may reverse those. I don't know, but those are my tops. And honestly, that only leaves six other albums that I didn't mention. And those, you know, a bunch of those are freaking great too. And some, you know, now that brings me to, to, to the last two songs. My song that I'm picking for this is a song called "Shoot to Kill" off of uh, originally "Distance to Empty," but also on Rex's new album, Rex Collection: The Best of Rex 2007 to 2020, a remastered version. Listen to that one. That's the link I have, and it's also streaming everywhere. I could have picked so many. I could have picked "Don't Get Me High," "Little White Lies," "Silence of the Disabused," "Micheline." There's so many other songs of mine that I could have picked. As uh, cure influenced songs, uh, yet I'm picking "Shoot to Kill" partly because I picked those songs, some of those songs, and partly because it has this uh, ma- like the perfect mix of keyboard sounds, rockness, alt rock, whatever, ambience, the sound of the guitar, the guitar solo itself, the style of the bass, the fact that it's a dark song with dark lyrics, but it has a danceable beat to it. It has some electronic elements to it everything about it's called shoot to kill and it's uh uh right after i had a a relationship that fell apart and it was the first line is if i fall in love again it'll only be because i let my guard down so there's a vulnerability in there but there's a there's a there's all the things that that are hallmarks of the cure but in my own way in Rex's own way and you have to listen to it to find out why i called it shoot to kill and after that is the bonus song, which is my live acoustic take on "The Caterpillar," which I talked about before. You will hear me deliberately sounding like Robert Smith. I make my voice like Robert Smith. But if you click the link on the full concert, you'll get a bunch of other Cure songs and a few of my originals that I felt fit into the Cure mold. Uh, and I don't think I—I I don't think "Shoot to Kill" was one of them. I, I honestly, uh, but it's all an acoustic live show. On video uh give it a listen take a listen to the songs that are coming up in the next 30 seconds and thank you for hanging with me for this super super episode of music is not a genre are you a fan of the cure at all if you've gone this far and you're not a fan then you you know you must really want to learn if you're not a fan is it because a you don't know them or b a lot of people take issue with robert smith's voice and to me a voice is either love it or you don't and the voice is what draws you into an artist other than instrumental work, you know, and, and uh, that is so distinctive that if you're just not into that voice the way some people aren't into Billy Corgan's voice, etc., then you're not going to get into the band. I understand. If you are into the band, do you have favorite eras? Do you have favorite songs? Or do you love everything about them? Uh, like I'd love to know all of this because, it's always, my objectives here are music conversation and connection. Thank you for hanging and watching and listening, and I'll talk to you next week.
0: God down So I'll never fall in love again If I